0: the teams, media, and fantasy baseball outlets. We'll give you a peek into our world, talk to important people around the industry about analytics storylines, and try to show you why analytics are interesting and fun. On today's show, we'll be joined by Washington Nationals Assistant General Manager Samuel mondry Cohen. Sam has been with the Nationals for 10 years. He started as a trainee, worked his way up to the ranks to run the team's research and development group. We'll talk to him about the Nationals' amazing season, analytics, and the team itself, and what happens in a team's analytics department, plus much more. Then I'll talk to my SIS research and development colleague, Andrew Kine, about the free agent market and some awards we'd like to hand out this past season. But first, let's start the show with a segment we like to call. Barrett. There were two managers who were hired this offseason whose knowledge of the analytics might be a little light. Mark Krig of The Athletic reported that though Carlos Beltran encourages players to be accepting of analytics as information, Beltran himself is not necessarily fully immersed in that sort of material. And Mike Matheny, newly hired by the Royals, said in his hiring press conference that he took an online class in baseball analytics to better familiarize himself with them between jobs with the Cardinals and Royals. That got me to thinking about the things a fan would want a manager to know about defensive stats. Here are three. One, the ability to turn batted balls into outs trumps all regardless of whether you're looking at defensive runs saved, UZR, outs above average, or any other stat. It's worth the most for every infield and outfield position, but this can't be gauged simply by putouts, assists, and errors. Players needed to be graded in terms of what they can get to and what they can't, and they need to be compared to their positional peers in that regard. Two, there are many things that we're evaluating that everyone is good at. This goes not just for fielding fly balls, line drives, and ground balls, but also things like scooping throws at first base or blocking pitches as a catcher. A lot of differences in defensive performance are small, but loom large because giving away outs can be extremely costly. And three, sometimes you're going to be surprised by what the stats tell you, but don't let one disagreement damage your understanding of the metric itself. By our metrics, Paul DeYoung saved the most runs at shortstop last season. Is a major league manager or coach going to buy into that when they watch players like Angelton Simmons and Nick Ahmed? Probably not. It's important to look at the components that go into DeYoung's rating as well as he does rather than dismiss the idea outright. Granted, in the heat of a moment during a game, a manager doesn't need to know the inner workings of these statistics but it will help him immensely to be armed with an understanding of why one defensive player may be good and why another may not be performing well. We'll see how they take to it in the results that take place on the field. Samuel Madri Cohen is the Nationals Assistant GM of Research and Development. He began his baseball career as a bat boy and clubhouse attendant for the San Francisco Giants. Then, while a student at the University of Pennsylvania took a job as a trainee in the Nationals Analytics Department, he worked his way up the ranks and is now an Assistant GM. Sam, thanks for joining us. First of all, congratulations on the amazing run by the Nationals. Are there any any analytics that go into making sure that a World Series ring can fit on your finger?
1: Oh, well, it's a pleasure to be here. No, I think that's a pretty straightforward uh, linear problem. So uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to answer that one.
0: I presume you're looking forward to that moment.
1: Very much so. Yes. Uh, you always uh, could dream about winning a World Series ring. I think the practical reality of will I ever wear it is uh, you know, is the open question. But yeah, I'm excited to see it.
0: All right, I want to talk about this season, but I also want to start by talking about you. Uh, how does someone who used to be a bat boy and clubhouse attendant become an assistant GM? Can you walk me through the steps that uh, that took you to the, the path that you're currently on?
1: Yeah, a lot of luck, I mean, you know, quite honestly. Um, but yeah, I think one of the commonalities between both is, a, you know, is a real passion uh, and love of baseball. And, um, you know, when I started... With the nationals in 2009 2010 that was at the time you know maybe enough to get you into a front office now we have much higher standards and requirements for what we're looking for but at the time i was you know, a very passionate baseball fan i had this job as you mentioned uh, in the clubhouse for the for the giants and the way i followed the game was reading you know the large baseball blogosphere fan graphs and baseball perspectives and the book blog and, and my father's a high school math teacher. I'm, you know, pretty mathematically inclined. And, and just the way I followed the game was kind of consuming and thinking about and talking about the kind of public sabermetrics uh, that were being published online. And I got an unpaid four week internship with the nationals in in 2009. They didn't have an analytics department. I was not an analytics intern. I was just kind of a a baseball ops intern. We didn't have anyone who was an analyst. And uh, because I had this, uh, kind of rabid passion for the public baseball sphere. I was able to, you know, add some value to the Nationals at the time. I sometimes look back and think I was lucky to to arrive in DC where there was kind of a non-existent department had I gone to Tampa. Uh, they might've said like, you know, you're a smart kid, you know a few things and get out of here. Um, but the, the Nationals were really in a state of flux. Mike Rizzo was the interim GM. As I mentioned, there was no R&D or analytics department. And so somebody who had been reading very closely, um, you know, fan graphs in the book blog and was, uh, starting to ask some questions about how that those principles can be applied to a team was able to add some value. And so that, that's how I got a foot in the door. And, um, you know, quickly tried to, to say, we need, uh, to hire real quants, you know, people that have a different background than I do. And, um, You know, slowly built up a department here of of people that fit that
0: description. What are the differences now between uh, now and then with regards to both the information itself and the receptiveness and the presentation of it to people uh, on the baseball side?
1: Yeah, well, there is a lot more information than when I broke in 2009, 2010. I mean, that was just the first couple years of the ball tracking data. Now, right, we know, um, you know, the location of all the players on the field, you uh, you know, 30 frames per second. So, you know, and there's other more robust data sets. So there's certainly a lot more more data. I think you touched on it. I think teams are more receptive or looking to how to integrate, um, you know, insights gleaned from this data into their uh, decision-making process. And, yeah, I mean, one of the differences when I started in 2009, 2010, I would say maybe 10 teams or a handful of teams had like an R&D department. I think none of them were called that, but they had some analysts and people that uh, were programming for a large portion of their day. Now every team has that. You know, all 30 clubs have several people um, that are doing data modeling and computer programming to, to build tools and insights uh, for their front office. And that wouldn't be the case unless some of these teams were also putting them into practice in some way or were getting some value out of them. So I think, yeah, the landscape's changed tremendously in, in how baseball decisions are made, uh, you know, top to bottom.
0: How does the Nationals Analytics Department work in terms of how it's structured and uh, different responsibilities, in both in terms of what you do and what uh, people who work with you uh, do?
1: Yeah, there's a pretty clean split between the you know the research side and the development side. The development side is really software development. People that are building um, you know proprietary websites uh, that house tools for our scouts, our minor league coaches. You know, General Manager Mike Rizzo. You know, being one of our biggest users. And this may be where they can get video or projections on, you know, any player in the baseball universe. It's where our scouts are entering their scouting reports, and our minor league coaches and coordinators are entering in these post game reports. And there's a whole other subset of people reading them, you know, after uh, every game. And so one half of the R&D department is really a software development team building, you know, proprietary websites and other, you know, web based tools for you know, about 120 baseball users. The research side are, you know, is a team of of data analysts trying to do, um, you know, data modeling to learn about uh, the game and create kind of actionable insights. Whether that's in player evaluation and player acquisition, you know, which players do we think are um, maybe more or less valuable than you might think from the back of their baseball card, or who's gotten unlucky, or who, if we put them in our uh, environment, would be a lot more valuable. And um, you know, another fraction of it has to do with sort of like in-game tools. Um, creating models that would be useful for the coaching staff, whether that's in making a pitching change or positioning the fielders. And yeah, the way we're structured here is everybody does a little bit of everything. I think some teams um, maybe have a large department and are a little bit more focused. This is the, you know, um, advanced guy and this is the guy doing you know projections and and where we are um everybody's kind of got their hand in in a little bit of everything It's much more collaborative which i think has pluses and minuses
0: what are the conversations like with the managers and the coaching staffs are they coming is is, uh is dave martinez coming to you or are you going uh, or are people on his staff coming to you or are you going to them if if you notice something
1: yeah it's much more the way it's structured here is um you know Bottom up, where the, where the coaches will, will bring um, their questions or problems that they think we may be able to you know help them with to us. There's uh, you know I, I think the culture is really dictated by you know your general manager and and you know I think Mike has has certainly made it available and, and has and provides this robust department to all the users, whether that's a player or a coach or scout. But then. Um, puts responsibility for using that on, on the end users. So yeah, we hear from Davey, you know, quite frequently, whether that's, um, you know, a discussion about a pitch mix that they're talking about for a pitcher or something that's being bandied about downstairs that he would ask for our um, opinion on and we'll bring him a report. And then it's up to him to, you know, disseminate it, whether he's going to, you know, give it to the player or have a conversation with the pitching or hitting coach about it, or really just, you know, use it to uh, inform his own opinion. That's, you know, that's really up, up to him. There are other, um things that i I wouldn't say they're top down but they're just tools that he has with him every day um that are part of you know his decision-making process that are things that you know we may build um for him and and um yeah, you know things he's seen be successful in other uh, other organizations
0: as well. Uh, Max Scherzer is someone who's known as, as being analytically inclined. I've, I've even talked to him about this, and he talked about the the I guess the software that he had that uh, he wouldn't say anything more than, "Oh, I have something." Um, mm-hmm. How how involved does he get with you guys?
1: Yeah, he's one of our uh, you know power users. Yep. I always jump a little bit when I when I hear from him because he's. Uh, you know his mind moves you know incredibly quickly and he is you know extremely extremely smart um and so yeah and and open-minded i would say you know he's willing to change his mind he may have an assumption you can you know he's a great audience in that he really listens to what you brought him and he'll consider it and i mean he may tell you if he disagrees but there's also instances where you can see him kind of reevaluating or updating his uh thought process so yeah we hear from him uh, you know, frequently, whether that's, he reaches out to me personally, or I hear from somebody, you know, downstairs on the advanced team that he's got something that he wants that he's been thinking about. Um, you know, and, and he's often, you know, thinking, you know, a year or more down the line, you know, he may ask us for some sort of tool and it's always, you know, apparent he's not going to try to put this into action now, but right. it's already thinking about the next season and what he may be able to do in the off season. And, um, yeah, one of, the, one of the real joys of my job is, is getting to you know, interact with, with Max and, and get to hear and, uh, and learn from the way he thinks about the game.
0: From joy to, uh, I guess, pain, at least at the time, 19 and 31, what was that like for the analytics department? Did the analytics department try and do anything to, to help the team uh, throw its funk at that point in the season?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was confusing, certainly. I mean, we, we, you know, we were convinced or believed pretty strongly that we had a good team. Um, but, you know, the facts are the facts and we, you know, we lost, you know, whatever, 60 percent of our games. Um, I don't know. I don't think we did anything differently that, you know, and I wish I wish I could say, yeah, we take some credit for the turnaround. Um you know, I, I, we were looking at what is the probability that this would happen. You know, were we, at, you know, could we be a good team and, and be nineteen to thirty one? How often do you do you see that transpire? Um, you know, had we seen teams come back from this sort of hole? Uh, you know, did this mean that the season was over or was there some precedent for a team coming back? I remember talking about uh, and then having this conversation with Craig Biggio actually during the World Series. But you know, he the two thousand and five Astros who uh, similarly had a very good team, uh, a lot of veteran players, and got off to a very slow start, but were able to. Uh, Turn around and come back to the World Series. I remember he likened us to that before game one, and I was a little pissed because uh, I remember that team got swept in the World Series. And I don't know <laughs> if that was the implication <laughs> that we were about to get swept as well.
0: But. Um, one other thing on this season. When something like a player acquisition, like a Daniel Hudson happens, is there a process that the GM of a team, that Mike Rizzo in this case, goes through uh, in which your group gets involved in making a decision
1: on a guy like that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of people involved. And I think to say that it's, you know, just the R&D department would be misleading. Right. Um, But but yeah, one of the things, I mean, he certainly looks at is, you know, what's our projection of a a player's future performance? You know, some of these models that we are always kind of tweaking and building, um, you know, and that's something that he can get out of our software. You know, he might not even need to come and ask me for that because, uh, you know, the software side of the R&D department's made that. So it's, you know, one click away from him. And if you, you know, want to ask a question of, you know, how does he think the guy would do in our ballpark, you know, he can toggle something and and here it comes up. Um, Yeah. There was some look at, at, you know, what sort of changes, why had he been more effective recently? You know, did we think his slider was maybe a different pitch than it had been uh, in, in years past. So yeah, you know, we certainly contribute, but it's, it's a large organizational conversation. And so much of it depends on, you know, what the, what the acquisition cost is going to be. And some of the times you don't know that until, Uh, you know, the last minute I remember the you know, the cost for Daniel Hudson was a lot higher, uh, you know, on July 30th and on July 31st. And so, you know, we may look unattractive at a certain cost on July 30th and then Mike has to be able to kind of pivot very quickly. So, um, yeah, I think we play a role in the preparation for, for Mike, you know, I'll be in the room with Mike and, you know, my team will be usually chirping at me from somewhere else and I'll try to kind of filter which, which of these comments I think are, are helpful (laughs) in the, in, in the room itself. But, yeah, they definitely play a role.
0: That must be fascinating.
1: It's a fun job, certainly.
0: (laughs) All right. So you're someone who can certainly talk about uh, working through the ranks, as as you described uh, with your path to the job. Uh, What what advice would you give to people, uh, we'll say, at the collegiate level that are uh, in school right now that are aspiring to work in a a baseball analytics department, whether it be in your role or in the role of, of other people within the group?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one piece of advice is definitely, you know, it's not one of these jobs that you have to have the job to do the job. You know, I mean, if you want to be a, you know, a surgeon, I don't think you can really perform surgery until you <laughs> until you have the job or you probably shouldn't. But you want to be a baseball analyst, um, you know, you can analyze baseball data, you know, at home on the internet. There's so much, um, you know, free data, you know, out there and, there and there are a lot of platforms to kind of to get an audience, whether that's your own blog, whether that's the Fangraphs community blog, whether that's. Putting things out on Twitter. So I think for people that are really serious and passionate about, oh, I want to um, build baseball models and do baseball analysis and talk about which players are underrated or which players, you know, if we've made this change to them, could become so much better, um, to start doing that, you know, that that you don't need to wait for a job. Um, Anyone in college or anyone trying to get in, I definitely encourage them to, um, you know, work on and build some concrete technical programming skills, you know. uh, our team programs, you know, all day in in SQL and in R and to some extent in Python. And, you know, when we see resumes that come in, it's kind of like there's one group of people that have the requisite um, technical skills and there's another group of people who don't and and it's much easier to get hired with with those technical skills. Okay, that's one of the things that's changed from when I started, you know, um, 10 years ago, I don't remember seeing any job listings or job descriptions. There were very few job listings at all. And to the extent there were, I don't remember any of them asking for, you know, programming proficiency in, in SQL and in R, whereas um, you know, I would say 90% of the job listings you'll see you know, at Fangraphs or Teamworks Online have that as a requirement now.
0: How much of an emphasis now would you place on uh, the communication aspect of it and being able to explain things that might be uh, complicated and advanced uh, in a language that Dave Martinez can understand or Max Scherzer can understand?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely very important. It's important to. Um, to kind of grow in the role and, and to, um, you know, rise up the ranks. But I, I think somebody who doesn't have those skills, honestly can still contribute. Now it might not be the most satisfying job. I say, okay, we're going to, you know, stick you in a closet and, and you'll you know produce some great models and somebody else will, will translate them. Um, so yeah, somebody who has it all certainly has those skills, but, um, somebody who has the technical skills, but doesn't have the communication skills or somebody who can communicate, but doesn't have the technical skills. I'll take the, the person with the technical skill set all day, um, in terms of, certainly breaking in in terms of ultimate upside and who's more likely to be a a GM or assistant GM or who might, you know, in 10 years have more of an impact on organization. I think, you know, there's a debate, but um, in terms of getting a job, I don't think there's any substitute for uh, real technical proficiency.
0: Samuel Mandry-Cohen, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, Best of luck uh, next year as you try to repeat.
1: I appreciate it. Yep, hopefully we'll be, uh, what is it, the 76 Reds? (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) national league exactly you got it
1: all right thanks mark
0: Today's favorite baseball publication is back and ready to help you through the offseason. The 2020 Bill James Handbook is available now from actasports.com. This year's big feature, a look at our new part system, which provides the best publicly available evaluation of infielder defense out there. Curious about which infielders are really the best at playing in the field? We've got you covered. Also, check out the winners of the 2019 Fielding Bible Award essays on Taste of play the hall of fame and more from bill james and the sports info solutions team of research experts we've got 2020 pitcher and hitter projections complete career data on every major leader and top prospect and every leaderboard you could possibly want that's the 2020 bill james handbook available at bookstores now at actosports.com or wherever you order books online Back on the Sports Info Solutions Podcast, I'm joined by research associate Andrew Kine. First up, let's talk free agency. I did an article for The Athletic going through 18 free agents and their defensive prospects. Is there anyone that you'd like to talk about?
2: Yeah, so the one guy that I really wanted to talk about actually happened to just sign with the Chicago White Sox. He has money grand dollars, just got a new four-year, $73 million deal uh, from the White Sox. I think he's super underrated, and you're talking about a pretty rare skill set in today's game, being both a well above average offensive player, but also someone who's mostly good defensively as well. And although he's had some defensive inconsistencies at times, notably in the playoffs a couple of years ago, uh, the one constant has been that our pitch framing numbers love him, and he was plus nine in strike zone run saved this year, and plus 10, plus 12, and plus 14 in the three years before that. So I was really interested to see where he'd end up, and I think the White Sox are getting a really good catcher. And another player that I am kind of interested to see what happens with is Nicholas Castellanos, who our defensive metrics have historically not liked at all. He was minus 19 DRS in 2018 after moving to right field. somewhat better in 2019 at minus 9, but likely someone who's going to lose value defensively. And he might not be an amazing hitter, at least not as amazing as he was down the stretch for the Cubs, but he's a pretty good one, so I'll be interested to see how teams value his skill set. But I do think there's two things working in his favor, one being that he'll turn 28 in March, so he's still fairly young for a free agent. Uh, and also, two, that he couldn't get a qualifying offer after being traded, so there's no draft pick him, so he's still uh, kind of valuable in that regard.
0: He's a good risk. He's a good risk for them, for whoever uh, picks him up. Uh, just the, the position is somewhat new to him, and he struggled at third base. He struggled, the outfield. Know, he did get better, though. His numbers were really bad, and now they're just not great, I guess, so to speak. Uh, with regards to Grandal, I think the thing that, that appeals to the White Sox is that they know that they have the the ability to make him a DH as well, whereas the National League team doesn't have that luxury. And it'll be interesting to see how the aging curve works uh, for him, Buster Posey, some of the other catchers that are starting to get older that are high-end catchers with regards to strike zone runs saved. And we've seen Jonathan Lucroy drop considerably uh, as he aged. So we'll see if, if those guys can somehow maintain. Right, right, I've got two. Uh, I want to bring up uh, Madison Bumgarner, uh, the free agent pitcher, who I think a couple of years ago you would have said this is going to be a guy who's going to get 100-plus 100, 100 million dollars. He's an interesting one to watch because you have contrasting things going on. The great postseason pedigree, you, uh, you don't even need to go through the numbers. He's basically Bob Gibson, Kurt Schilling, super elite postseason pitcher. He's won every big game. He tends to win them on the road, which you would figure would be difficult. He uh, won the 2014 World Series for the Giants in Game 7, uh, coming out of the bullpen, pitching five scoreless innings. But you look at his numbers. Oracle Park uh, is a place that he's very comfortable in. If you look outside of Oracle Park, last two years, ERA above five on the road. The size of the ballpark and the quality of the outfield defense are going to be important for him uh, because of the fly balls. Uh, if he's in a small ballpark, he's going to give up a lot of home runs. Uh, balls that in 18, AT- that AT&T and now Oracle uh, would be uh, would be trouble. Uh, could be trouble in other parks uh, in at t or Oracle. At least pre pre maneuvering of the outfield. Um, Those balls are out. So he's someone to watch uh, for sure. And you also have the Buster Posey factor. Buster Posey has helped make Madison Bumgarner the pitcher that he is today for sure. He has uh, contributed with what you were just talking about, with strikes that are unsaved, with pitches on the outside corner that he turned into strikes that might not have been strikes for uh, for other catchers. The other guy I want to talk about is Gerard Dyson. He'll get a one-year deal, maybe a minor league invite. But he's fascinating to me. He is a run saver. If you look at the last five seasons and you look at outfielders, he is the second best in run save per 1,000 innings, which is crazy considering the teams don't play because he doesn't hit. And he's 35 now, and he can still go get it. And he showed that in Arizona. He was very good uh, for them. It's kind of like they have these secret weapons. They have Jeff Mathis, and now they have Dyson, uh, and now they might not have him anymore. But he's a fascinating one for whoever picks him up, because he, he's essentially the role of the defensive closer. He can come in and play the outfield in the eighth and ninth innings and finish the game out for you. All right. Uh, the other thing that we wanted to do was move this quick. We're going to give out some awards uh, for the end of the season. It was just awards week. We have our own awards week here. I'll start with the hard hitter award. The player who had the highest rate of hard hit balls within the times he made contact this year was Aaron Judge, fifty-four percent. He edged out Miguel Sano and Nelson Cruz. The player with the most hard hit balls, indicative of why he was an MVP finalist, Marcus Semien, two hundred thirty-three. On the
2: mound, to kind of the reverse of that, the contact minimizer, to the pitcher who best limited hard contact. In 2019, goes to Eduardo Rodriguez of Boston Red Sox. 28.7% hard contact rate led all qualified starters. Ahead of Noah Syndergaard, Jacob Degrom, and Steve Stroster.
0: Eduardo Rodriguez, certainly someone to watch, I, I would say, as a future ace type pitcher. The flat bat award. The flat bat goes to the best bunter. That goes to Colton Wong. 11 for 16 when bunting for a hit. You might recall we dropped this up on a previous episode of the podcast. He also had six successful sacrifices without a failure. He ranks number one ahead of Adam Eaton, Hanser Roberto, Victor Robles, and the guy who was only running for hits to beat the shift, Raymond Bell. Stolen base stopper goes to
2: the catcher who had the most stolen base front saved, and that is JT Realmuto of the Phillies, way ahead of the pack, plus 10 stolen base front saved. And to put his numbers in perspective a little bit, he threw out 37 runners trying to steal, Next closest was twenty-two and on a rate basis he threw out forty-three percent of base dealers, which was also well atop the leaderboard. What's interesting there is that in his four full seasons in Miami, he had always been between twenty-six and thirty percent, so a big jump to forty three percent for
0: him in his first year. He had a terrific defensive season uh, all the way around improved in a number of different aspects. The vacuum cleaner is the player who had the most good fielding plays, as judged by our video scouts, on ground balls. Not a surprise here. The winner is Nolan Arenado, who had 31, six more than Matt Chapman, as a matter of fact. Trevor Story finished third with 22. One other player had 20 or more. Surprising name. Rafael Devers, who uh, right near the bottom in... Run saved by a third baseman, but he made a lot of good plays in 20 uh, for the season.
2: Sticking with catchers for me, the hall of framer to the catcher who had the best pitch framing numbers goes to former SIS Baseball Podcast guest Austin Hedges of the Padres at plus 18 strike zone run saved. Roberto Perez, who actually led all baseball in DRS and was the Fielding Bible Award winner catcher, finished second in strikes zone run saved plus 11. The one interesting thing about Hedges that you've written a few times, Mark, is how Padres were 47 and 46 in the game started by Hedges, 23 and 46 otherwise.
0: I'm fascinated by that because everyone says, oh, you know, Ketriari doesn't necessarily matter, but, and he hit like 170. He clearly was valuable beyond just being behind the plate. That was someone, um, it was cool to talk to him. We heard about his passion for the subject of pitch framing, his enjoyment of umpires, uh, which was a fun lesson. If you haven't heard that episode, please check it out. And then we go from one podcast guest to another. The Fly Swire. This is the player who had the most good fielding plays on fly balls. The winner of that is Kevin Pilar of the Giants. He had 18. No one else had more than 13. That doesn't surprise me, because if you watch the way Kevin Pillar plays... He's all about the acrobatic catches. His catches tend to look very impressive. So, uh, congrats to him for winning
2: that one. And finally, sticking with the outfield, the home run robber to the outfielder who had the most home run robberies. This one is actually a tie between Josh Reddick and Fielder Bible Award winner, Lawrence Kane. Each of them robbed five home runs, uh, which tied the record in the season, which was originally set by Carlos Gomez when he had five way back in 2013. And we talked about the increasing rates of home run robberies earlier in the season on this podcast. And we did see the league record set with 69 home run robberies this year, the most since we started tracking them back in 2004.
0: Congratulations to Lorenzo Kane and Josh Reddick. In fairness to, to them, Cain's look better. I watched. I think I've, I've watched all of them. Kane's uh, were a little more challenging in some regards, but Reddick, uh, he gets credit too. They both had five for the year. And with that, We wrap up our podcast episode four this week. Thanks for tuning in. For our guest, Samuel Montre Cohen, our co-host, Andrew Kahn, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you down the road.
2: Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.